Hey, good, good morning, church. Last Sabbath, I was away, and uh, I, was telling, I was telling Don this morning that uh, it felt like I was visiting Marietta. I mean, three years I was there, you know, my dog was basically the mascot of the church. Uh, this, you know, 106-pound Rhodesian Ridgeback, and we'd bring him because we'd be doing something after church, and so we, we didn't want to leave him at home because those of you who are dog owners know that if a dog gets bored, it might start to chew something up. And so we didn't want to do that, so I'd bring him to the church, and I'd put him in my office, and people would stop by to see the dog. I mean, I think that they loved our dog more than me, personally. But, you know, hey, ministry, right? My dog, is a, is, he's, he's a pastor's kid, so he knows that it's all about ministry. And, but as I was at Marietta for a baptism, I got to baptize, a, a, really, he's like a younger brother to me. His name's Brock. Uh, I, I resonate with his story so much on loving a sport and feeling conflicted about Sabbath and, and choosing God over a sport. Uh, and so just it was awesome to be there, but it felt like I was away from home. And so it feels good to be back home this Sabbath. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about something that uh, I think is incredibly, um, oh, what's the word? Oh, wow, my brain is going blank here on the word. Uh, you know, it's just something. We're just gonna, we're gonna unpack it. It's something, all right? But hey, if this is your first time visiting us, we're glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, we're so glad that you chose to worship with us today. And so before we kind of get in, I'm gonna have another word of prayer. So would you just bow your heads with me? Father, we want to thank you because, Lord, you are just such an awesome God. As, as Nelson brought up, really the, the foundation of our worship is just gratefulness. It's gratitude because you have done everything on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we kind of let that sink in, just may you open up our hearts. May you just, as a surgeon takes a scalpel, just open up our hearts so that we can hear you speak into them directly this Sabbath. For we're praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, our, our sermon for today is titled Safeguard of Freedom, and uh, the reason for this is because there are multiple narratives of freedom circulating right now. And this notion of, of freedom is really something that we tend to uh, assume everyone is, is coming from the same beginning point. But in reality, freedom is rather complex. You have one individual who says that freedom is no restrictions. None. Absolutely none. Maybe when you were a kid, you, you wanted freedom, and your version of freedom was you didn't have a curfew, or you didn't have any chores to do before you could go out and play with your friends, or you didn't have to go to school, or you didn't have homework assignments. You had no restrictions. You could choose what you wanted to do at any time without any ramifications for how it impacted somebody else. For others, freedom might be a more serious issue of of, of having equal opportunity, equal rights. That might be what comes to mind when you think of freedom. And when it comes to the biblical definition of freedom, we actually see something that we participate in every single weekend. In fact, some might call it a safeguard. There is an individual, uh, and he had this article. This is from 2018, September 28, 2018. Denied high school football. Davian Taylor found an improbable path to Colorado. And this is what it says in the article. So why didn't Taylor? He played one game of high school football. So why didn't Taylor play in more or in any, in any more high school football games? His mother's religion forbade it. 
The Sabbath for Seventh-day Adventists is observed from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday when Adventists refrain from secular work and recreation to honor the holy day. Since high school football games in Mississippi are played Friday nights, it created a problem, a big problem. I remember seeing this article, and I'm sitting there thinking of uh, just uh, of the research that had to go into it, right? I mean, think of the word cho- Look at the word choiceage. Denied high school football. I mean, that's a negative. Um, so why didn't Taylor play any more high school football games? His mother's religion forbade it. I mean, that's, that's negative, right? And yet, this individual, this, this author, Matt Hayes, he's talking about a, a high school football player from Mississippi who is obviously gifted with supreme athleticism, and yet... He doesn't get to use it, is what he thinks and what Matt Hayes thinks, because of this thing called Sabbath. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, we, we have it attached to our name. I remember thinking, okay, what, what church am I going to belong to or am I going to join once I became a, a Christian? And, and I remember Googling churches, you know, figuring out what the nearest Baptist church kind of believed. And, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of names for churches. Um, I would like to belong to the Church of Christ, but I didn't know that there was, a, there was a denomination called the Church of Christ. I just was, I said I wanted to follow Jesus, and so I want to be a part of his church. So I just Googled Church of Christ, thinking surely they have similar thoughts that I have, right? But now I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And I think it's rather interesting that we would have our church denomination, even though we, we believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus so much that we are radically committed to Jesus. In fact, that's really the only... He's the only person we're committed to when it comes to religious things. It's just Jesus. Prove it to us from Jesus, period. Matter of factly, it's just all about Jesus for us. And yet our church name is Seventh-day Adventists, right? The seventh day, signifying this thing called the Sabbath. And for Davy and Taylor, the Sabbath was restrictive. It didn't allow him to step into something that he really, really wanted. And as somebody who has worked with youth in most of their ministry, I can tell you that there is this tension that many of us feel around Sabbath. There's a a lot of tension. Friday comes and you start to think, oh man, I don't get to have as much fun tomorrow as I normally would. Some people feel that way. Some, we, we mask it because we take a picture of nature and we say, so thankful for Sabbath because we're exhausted from a work week, but really we're just so thankful that we can just not go into work. It's not really about the Sabbath, it's just more so about just not going into work. It's about this day off, and, but we, we frame it from this perspective of Sabbath. So why would Davian Taylor's story be important for us to kind of address See, I can, I can relate to Davian Taylor on the opposite side. I was a, a hockey player. You guys, you guys know this. I've shared, you, shared this with you. And as I was becoming a Christian, I was studying my Bible. I remember I'm at my grandparents' farm up in North Carolina, Timberlake, North Carolina, and I'm praying because I only hang out with my grandparents. I'm 19 years old, and so I get down on my knees and I say, Lord, take me anywhere. I love my grandparents. But I needed some friends that were my own age. That's how I felt. And so I said, Lord, take me where, it doesn't matter where it is, Lord, bring me somewhere or bring some friends to this place. And that evening, I get a text message. And it's from my assistant hockey coach that I haven't spoken to in over a year. I haven't played hockey in over a year. 
and the text message reads, hey Luke, um, are you interested in still playing? I might have a spot on a team for you in Texas, where I'm from, 10 minutes from my mom's house, playing junior level ice hockey. And the natural progression that my brain goes is, if I go, if I take this opportunity, this is an answer to prayer, an immediate answer to prayer. I'm a young convert at this point. I'm thinking, oh, this is fantastic. Jesus wants me to go play hockey. And I'm thinking, okay, if I go and I play junior hockey here, um, I could probably get a scholarship to play Division Three hockey, which is really good. I've, I had played, I'd done some training camps with some Division Three hockey players. I knew that I could kind of handle the speed of the game. And so my brain starts to chart this path for my redemption narrative of I go and play here, then I go to a Division Three school, then I play for one year, then I walk on Division One. I, I play Division One for three years, and then I try my absolute best to get a, a contract and free agency. And when you're my stature, five foot eight, you have to go the collegiate route because you get a collegiate weight room. And so everyone who plays professional hockey that's under really 5'10", they go the collegiate route because you get the weight room so you get to bulk up to where you can handle the physicality of it. And so I remember thinking, okay, here's this, here's this redemption narrative. I just prayed, Lord, take me wherever it is, and it's even better than I could imagine. It's ice hockey. And then my secondary thought was, but what about Sabbath? I didn't even know what I was thinking at that point. In fact, when I told my friends about it, they had no idea what I was thinking. They thought I had gone mad. Because I remember texting my coach and telling him that, no thanks, coach, I really appreciate it, but I, I've, I found a new type of freedom that I'm not willing to give up. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and so if you're uh, getting there in your phone um, and you want to follow along with the translation that I'm reading from, uh, New American Standard, NASB, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. We're actually going to be looking at the whole chapter because this is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, this is just incredibly profound what God teaches us from Exodus 16. See, the context is this. Exodus 15 is this song of deliverance, right? It's the song of Moses. God has just used Moses to bring this entire nation out of slavery, right? Thus signifying that God values freedom. He went and got his children and he brings them up out of slavery. And they're several days into this new narrative of their life, a freedom that they've never experienced before. 400 years of captivity. That means that everyone that has been brought up out of slavery has never experienced freedom before. They have been oppressed. They've, their whole livelihood has been to create for somebody else. Their, their timeline has been for somebody else. They have to show up to work to work for somebody else, and somebody else tells them when they can go home, what they can do, when they can take their break, uh, when they can go and, and spend some time with their family. It, they, they never get a vacation. They never get a weekend. And all they're doing is building these monuments to signify the superiority of Pharaoh and his family. That's, that's their livelihood. And so God brings them out of slavery, and this is uh, what the Bible says, immediately upon their uh, freedom. Exodus 16, verse 1, it says, Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, 
On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're, they're thinking of, of going back. They want to go back into slavery because they're hungry. You ever been so hungry that you're just willing to accept whatever terms somebody offers you so that you can have something to eat? I mean, I mean for me, it's, it's a Pop-Tart. I mean, it's the strawberry one with the frosting on top. I mean, it's the worst thing imaginable, but they're so good. And, I mean, my friend could coax me out of, he could coax me into really pretty much anything for a strawberry Pop-Tart because they were just so good, right? But no, here, Israel, they've, they've, they've been delivered. They've been set free, and they're mere days into freedom, and they're hungry. They have an immediate need that surfaces, and so they're willing to go back into slavery. Ah, oh, man, that just, it just doesn't make sense, right? But, but think about it. If you've never experienced freedom before, and now you're in freedom, and there's all of this possibility that things could go wrong, you're going to become rather fearful to the point where any level of stability, even if it's suffering, might sound appealing. And so they start to grumble, and they say, oh, we, ah, why would you bring us out here to kill us in the wilderness? But then verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. You ever felt like you were being tested by God? Right? You ever feel like he, he put you in a situation where you basically had, had two options, right? You could either die holding on to, to your conviction, or you, you could uh, die, literally, right? Because that's how you feel. You feel like you, you don't have any good options. Otherwise, you wouldn't be in a tough place, right? Sometimes we're, we end up in situations where you feel like you're being tested by God, and the only options are suffering and suffering, and so it just seems, God, why would you do that? Right? Why, why would you do that? If, if God is a loving God, which the Bible says he is, why would he test Israel? Right? They're grumbling. They're hungry. And he says, all right, all right, I'm going to use this as a teaching moment. You ever have a parent that does that? Or they, maybe some of you parents, <laughs> your kid does something, and then you say, all right, this is going to be an educational opportunity. This is going to be a lesson. And then if they turn into a pastor, all the lessons that they've learned become stories and sermons. So God, he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to test you, right? And so verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So here's the test. I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. We're going to call this thing called manna. And you're going to go and pick up enough for your family, for your immediate household each day. But then the sixth day is going to come, and you're going to collect how much? Twice as much. That's the test. So verse 7. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And so verse 8 through 21, it goes about where the, uh, the, the Israelites, they, they see this, uh, this flake-like thing on the ground, and, and they call it manna, and so they go out, and they, you have some that, that don't quite trust God's guidance, and, and so they try to gather too much, but it, it spoils and then you have some who they gather just enough and, and their entire household is, their needs are met every single day, daily. 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday comes. And God has said on the sixth day, you're to go out and you are to collect twice as much. Why? Because, and this is, this is where it gets amazing, verse 22, Exodus 16, verse 22. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And Israel, being the nation and being human that they were, they go out and they try to find some on the, on the seventh day. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? And this is, this is oh, what a beautiful verse. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. It's not a, a restriction. The Sabbath is, is meant to be a, a gift. You know, there's this Jewish rabbi, his name was Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he writes this. He, he talks about the Sabbath. This is in his most well-known book, The Sabbath. Gallantly, ceaselessly, quietly, man must fight for inner liberty or freedom to remain independent of the enslavement of the material world. Inner liberty depends upon being exempt from domination of things as well as from domination of people. There are many who have acquired a high degree of political and social liberty, but only very few are not enslaved to things. This is our constant problem. How to live with people and remain free. How to live with things and remain independent. So this is what God did with the Sabbath. He set in place a safeguard to protect his people, his children, from submitting to alternative forms of slavery. Taylor, the football player, he thought that the Sabbath was a restriction, when in reality the Sabbath is a safeguard for freedom. This is the very first thing that God teaches Israel. He's just performed the greatest act of deliverance, an act that is going to be told time and time and time again. In fact, he commands the Israelites to tell their children, Remind them of the story of how I came into Egypt and brought you up out of there because of my love for you. In fact, he sets in place this thing called the Passover to continually remind them that it was God that did it, not them. They didn't, it, it's not like they caused an, an, an uprising, a revolt, right? Led by some super charismatic leader and there's swords and, and violence and, and fights, right? It's not, it's not like that. No, in fact, it's, it's God doing all of it. He did everything to set his people free. And so, mere days in the wilderness, they're already thinking because freedom is, is difficult. Let's be honest. We're constantly bombarded with so many things. I shared one time in a sermon this ad from a Mercedes-Benz, right? It's this ad titled, Grow Up. And it was marketed towards uh, individuals, millennials, uh, young adults, you know, kind of in their mid to, uh, mid-20s to mid to mid-30s kind of uh, demographic. And surveys have found out that this demographic tends to live at home longer. 
And so Mercedes-Benz, I'm sure they were gathered around this table. They said, hey, what could we do? What's our target audience? What? I mean, they, they spend millions of dollars in how to market towards you and I to get us to buy their product. They're not the only company. We're bombarded all the time with ads, campaigns. I mean, if you want to know what is the number one selling thing in Alpharetta, just drive around and look at the billboards. You'll find out very quickly because money rises to the top in marketing. And so Mercedes-Benz, they said, hey, we'll help you grow up. Well, what comes with growing up? Freedom. You now get the ability to make decisions on your own. And so Mercedes-Benz subliminally said, we'll help you grow up to attain that freedom. But that's just one ad. I mean, they're all over the place. My grandmother, she doesn't watch commercials, so she doesn't know what, how she's being marketed towards, but uh, she refuses. She'll get up and leave the room. It's fantastic, because I'll ask her to make popcorn during that moment or something. It's like, it's like best of both worlds. But, but, I mean, commercials, not just Super Bowl commercials, but just every commercial, radio commercials, billboards, trends. I mean, people spend their livelihoods thinking about how to get us to be consumers. Israel has just entered freedom, and they're already thinking about going back into slavery because it's easy to be enslaved. It's hard to remain free. Because you're going to be bombarded, and you're going to feel this tension almost all the time. You're just naturally going to feel this tension. Uh, I, have a, I have a friend. His name is Avery Daniels. And I was working at, at summer camp. I was a camp counselor. And it was, it was teen camp. And so, you know, teen camp is super easy because you just tell all the teens that, uh, well, one, they don't have phones. So they can't, you know, text and stay up late at night or anything like that because they don't, they don't know what to do without technology nowadays. So, so it's super safe, right? And then I would just tell them, hey, guys, uh, there's this thing called Honor Cabin. And if we, if we get enough points with a clean cabin and, and we're respectful, whatever, then we get like a pizza party or like a pool party and, and things like that. And they'd, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, that'd be so cool, you know, etc. And I'd be like, yeah, we're not going to get honor cabin. Just let's just accept that right now. Chances are we're not going to get honor cabin. It's just going to happen. But what we will do is if everything is clean and we're respectful, we will prank other cabins. We almost want honor cabin like every week. Because we were super tidy. I mean, you just an alternative, right? An incentive to prank other cabins, right? So Avery's in my cabin, and he is a stud of a basketball player. He's in eighth grade, and he's already on a list because he's like 5'11 in eighth grade. But when, when you play, when you get to a certain high-level, um, you know, pinnacle of, of a sport, or you play high-level sports, you can see the fluidity in which other people play. And you can just tell they get it. They understand. The game is easy for them. And so when you'd watch Avery play, even in eighth grade, you could tell that everything was in control. He was in full control. In fact, every other person had to operate at his pace. It was just, it was, you could see it. And so Avery's big dream was, is obviously to play in the NBA. But he's a Seventh-day Adventist. And so he knows, he can feel that tension that there's going to be this conflict. And so I remember after our Friday night play, we, we would always, it'd be the passion of Jesus, and it would tell the story of Jesus and his crucifixion. And, and so we'd sit down and we'd discuss with the kids what it meant and what sacrifice and, and commitment to Jesus meant. I remember Avery sharing how he was, he was scared because he loved basketball, but he was wondering how that was going to conflict with his faith. And so I told him my story on how I had an opportunity to pursue ice hockey, and I said, you know, I'd rather Sabbath meant too much to me. And I shared this line with him on how I think it's better, I think it's even more powerful. I think it's, you have the, the final, you have the last say, when you can say, yeah, I could have, but instead I chose God. 
I think, that, I think that's so much weightier. Because everyone else, they would love to be able to, whatever, have that job with that travel budget, with that company car, with that home, or play that sport, or go to that school. I think it'd be much better to be able to say, yeah, you know, if I wanted to, I probably could have, but instead I just chose to follow Jesus. I mean, it's so counterproductive. It's, it's counterintuitive, right? It almost doesn't make sense. And so Avery, after I shared with him my story, he transferred. Going into ninth grade, going into a, a super great basketball program, he transferred to an Adventist boarding academy because he would rather use basketball as a ministry than as an idol. Israel, they're mere days into, into freedom, and they're already trying to go back into slavery. Already trying to go back. And so, uh, oh, i got to go back here. Jesus says this, right? We, we saw in, uh, in Exodus that Sabbath was given, right? Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift. It's a safeguard to show us if we're truly living free. In fact, there's this, been this uptick in, in literature. This is probably, uh, every book is probably no older than three years old, and these are all from non-Adventist authors, but they're looking at how exhausted, how anxious, how we're getting less sleep, how our relationships are breaking down, and so they have hypothesized that it's because, as Christians, they've forgotten about Sabbath. So we have subversive Sabbath, Sabbath, you have keeping the Sabbath holy, holistically, you have this finding the Sabbath in, in the everyday sacred rest, and then you have John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Did you know Atlanta is the third most overworked city in the United States before COVID? Third most overworked city in the United States. We're constantly on the go that we have no time to pause and rest. What does that say about who our master really is? if we don't have control to say, nope, you know, I'm going to take this time off to focus on something more important to me. Right? I mean, it shows that, that there is a level of, of non-freedom that is happening. So, what is the Sabbath? Because we, we could look at some verses. We could go to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to go there um, in a little bit. But, but the Sabbath kind of has this negative connotation for many. I remember when I showed up to, to Southern Adventist University, and I was quickly introduced that there are many theories or many different ways that one practices Sabbath. You would have some kids who they couldn't wait until Friday because they would be in the dorm and they'd be playing video games until like 3 o'clock in the morning and they, just, they, were, they were pumped for it because the weekend came. And then you'd have some who they would spend all day at church. They'd wake up early, they, they would go to their church service, then they would have a, a, an afternoon lunch, and then they would go to like an outreach activity where they'd go and canvas a neighborhood by handing out these tracts or, or go knock on doors to see if they could pray with someone. And then they wouldn't get home until like maybe 7 p.m. And then they would go to a closing the Sabbath thing. And so the whole day was spent, and I remember thinking, man, how do you, how do you actually rest? Like that just sounds exhausting to me. Right? I mean, as a full-time student, I mean, I, I, need, I need to just pause, like, you know, sometimes. But then you'd have some who, they, they would use the Sabbath to catch up on sleep because they were exhausted from the week. And so Sabbath, so there were these many different ways that Sabbath manifested in, in my peers' lives. And so I remember thinking, well, what, this question right here, what is the Sabbath then? Because as Christians, is there, is there freedom in how one keeps Sabbath? Oh, Absolutely. There's a lot of freedom. In fact, I'm so thankful that God doesn't say this is what every single time of the day is to be, right? You wake up at 
7.05 and 30 seconds, you're brushing your teeth. You know, 7.10, you're... I mean, I'm so thankful it's not that regimented, right? Because God is God that values freedom. So what then is the Sabbath? Well, this is what it says in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner, which is uh, somebody who's staying with you from out of town, who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's from the Ten Commandments. But then there's another section in the Ten Commandments. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and female servant may rest as well as you. And then it says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So we have two reasons. The reason, reason one is because God is the creator, and then reason two, that God is the redeemer. That's, that's the whole reason for the Sabbath, right? Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we might know, uh, for those of us who are Seventh-day Adventists, we, we've heard these verses before, and, and we just have, we've, we've heard kind of, you know, rather, uh, I, I would say, uh, just very brief studies on the Sabbath. I would, I would say that we've kind of peaked in our studying of what Sabbath really is because we can prove that it's the seventh day. I mean, it's, I mean the Bible is pretty clear that the seventh day is the Sabbath. But there was a non-Seventh-day Adventist scholar. His name is Meredith Klein. And he, an Old Testament scholar, he looks at the Ten Commandments. Now, how many stones are the Ten Commandments? You have one stone, right? You have two tablets of stone. And we, if you walk into some homes, you'll see this layout, right? You walk in, and you have on one tablet of stone, there's the four commandments. And then on the other tablet of stone, there's the six. I mean, I, I really feel like if God, with, with, the, with the God of the Bible that was so intricate on the creating of the sanctuary, to me, it... it it's, I struggle with how incongruent the numbers are. You know, you have four, and then you have six. Like, I struggle with that because I would think that God would do five and five because it would just be perfect alignment, right? And so every time I see that kind of tapestry or picture, I, just, I, I struggle with it because it's just illogical to me, right, that, that the God that created numbers would, wouldn't have five and five, right? But he's God, I'm not, so he has his thing. But there's this thing called a suzerain covenant, a suzerain covenant was a covenant made between a king of tremendous power and another individual who needed assistance that the king of tremendous power helped out. They would establish a suzerain covenant, and this covenant was essentially stipulations on how you are to act now that I redeemed you. It's basically how you can pay me back, right? We have this nowadays where you're at Taco Bell and you forgot your wallet and you say, I'll cash app you right? Or, you know, oh, can I pay you on Venmo? Or, you know, something like that. Like, those are our stipulations. That's like a, a brief suzerain covenant we make all the time. Well, with God, the Ten Commandments mirror a suzerain covenant. It was an ancient Near Eastern thing. You could pull it up on Wikipedia. You could pull, I mean, there's uh, document after document after document pointing to the fact that the Ten Commandments are probably a suzerain covenant. So what does that mean? 
Because in the suzerain covenant, you would have you would get a you would have a copy if you were the conquering king, and then you would hand a copy to the person that you helped out. Right? So you would each have a copy. Interesting, because there's two tablets of stone. And in the middle of the copy, you would put your dynastic seal, which was a seal of your image. But there's a commandment that says to not make any graven images. So surely that rules out that this is a suzerain covenant because God can't, there's no image of God, right? It's not like he put a picture of Jesus because, you know, Jesus doesn't come until the New Testament, right? But there's this man, his name is Meredith Klein, and this is what he has to say about the fourth commandment. He says, as a further detail, this is theological speak, okay? As a further detail, in the parallelism of external appearance, it is tempting to see in the Sabbath sign presented in the midst of the ten words the equivalent of the suzerain's dynastic seal. This is a non-Adventist scholar, very well respected, highly regarded as an authority in Scripture. And he's saying that the Sabbath is the dynastic seal. But then he goes on to say this, by means of the Sabbath, God's image bearer, so the Sabbath is God's image bearer, as a pledge of covenant consecration, images the pattern of the divine act of creation, which proclaims God's absolute sovereignty over man. So the Sabbath, he's saying, is God's dynastic seal. But then he says this, God has stamped on world history the sign of the Sabbath as his seal of ownership and authority. Which means that those who keep Sabbath should technically be the most free individuals in the world. Because we don't operate on the timeline of what the world tells us to do. We don't feel the push to go and, and have this wardrobe so we look this certain way, or to have this job so we're esteemed in this certain light, or, or to be this, you know, this type of way in a relationship, or this type of way in a relationship. We don't feel that tension anymore when we understand that the Sabbath is this safeguard for freedom, and it's the sign of God over our lives that he is Lord and that he wants us to have freedom. But for many of us, we might feel this tension because we struggle with Sabbath-keeping. We do, because we think of it as it's just a day off, which is, that's not, that's not what the intention of it was. See, in fact, Scripture... I'm so thankful for how Scripture does this because Scripture gives us several Sabbath values to help us, to help guide us so that we can live truly in freedom. Uh, one Sabbath value is to stop from working for ourselves and our own pleasure and to stop from having others work on our behalfs, right? So we take a break and we extend a break to somebody else. So now we are freedom giving. We're saying, no, 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 no. You don't have to work on my behalf, I'll do it freely. In, I'll do it voluntarily. You don't have to coax me into it. No, no, no. I will serve you because, out, of, out of love, right? Because I've stopped from, from my work, from trying to gain ground in, in my life and in my job, and I, wanna, I want you to be able to stop as well. Then there's this one. This is probably one of my favorite. Rest, right? Rest from work to focus on God as our Redeemer, recognizing the free gift of grace, give others rest from working on our behalf, valuing them as God's children, and seeking to give them the rest that God grants us every day, rest from worry, stress, selfish pursuits, and hurry. Then we have this one, delight. This one is my absolute favorite. I wanted to title this play, but I, I thought it, it, you know, it, we would miss it. So delight. We delight in intentional fellowship choosing to participate in fellowship that will help us grow in our understanding of God and his love 
for us. We embrace a childlike trust in God as Savior and provider and therefore can really let go and rest. And then we play in creation. I had to sneak it in somewhere. We play in creation, learning more about our loving God who is the creator. I mean, you ever go to the zoo and you see otters? Otters are my favorite animal. I think they're amazing. And they live a life on slip and slides. I mean, it's like summer camp every day of their life. It's fantastic. I mean, God created otters with that, like, that mindset, that way. So, of course, God values playing outside in creation, right? I mean, you look at nature. So we delight, and then we worship. We worship God in song and music. We worship God by serving others and bringing about his restoration. We learn in Sabbath school that an act of worship is seeking the justice of the oppressed and the marginalized. We worship God by spending intentional time with him in prayer and scripture. And so what we find is we find these four values, right? We stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. And these aren't, these aren't mandates. These are values that God gives us concerning the Sabbath to help us live freely, to help us not get coaxed into religion, but to embrace Christianity. See, there's a difference. Religion tells you this is what you can do to earn God's favor. Christianity says there was nothing you can do to earn God's favor. In fact, God himself stepped into your position because he loves you, period. So religion is, okay, here's all the things that you have to do, right? You have to spend every single day. You wake up at 6 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and you read your Bible, right? And if you miss a day, you feel guilty and you feel shame. Or you set out to, to, to have a better prayer life, right? And then you miss a time and you feel guilt. That's religion because you're feeling like, oh, wait a second, if I don't do this, God won't love me as much anymore. No, 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 friends. There's nothing you could do to ever lose the love of God because there was nothing you could do to gain it. It was free. It was an act of grace. And so there are these Sabbath values to safeguard us to live a life of freedom. In fact, the, the church in Galatia was struggling with understanding the gospel. Their, the number one question was, how much of a Jew do I have to become? to be a follower of Jesus. And, and so there were some leaders that were coming in and saying, well, you had to be like this and you had to keep this portion of the law and et cetera. And this is what Paul says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It's freedom. Christ wants to give us freedom. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And so when we have this inclination to go back into an alternative form of slavery, God says, no, 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 no. See, I have set a sign from the very foundation of the world to be a safeguard to help you live freely. Living freely means that you don't care if, if, uh, if you lose your job over Sabbath because you're not going to surrender to some taskmaster because your heavenly father you know will take care of you. That's living freely. Living freely is knowing that you don't have to have the most up-to-date vehicle or the most up-to-date technology, no matter what everyone tries to tell you, because your Heavenly Father is going to take care of you. I mean, he showed Israel, each day you have to go out and collect enough for that day. Jesus says, when you pray, say, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, it's a daily thing. In order to prepare for Sabbath, it's not just you get there Friday and you're just like, okay, Sabbath is upon us. No, you have to prepare every single day. You have to have an intentionality every single day so that you can truly live freely and enter into a Sabbath rest. I learned this when 
I had a, I had a friend who called me. I, I had seen him several times. Uh, we never had a class before, but he worked as a, as a checkout clerk at the Village Market Deli. Uh, not at the deli, at the Village Market up at Southern Adventist University up in College Hill, Tennessee. And his name is Jordan. And we would, we would go you know, back and forth. I'd always see him as I'm rushing to my Comp 101 class or, or another class or et cetera because I was always rushing across campus. And he'd always ask me how it was going, and I'd be like, oh, man, it's great. You know, God is good. Like, you know, I'm learning so much. You know, this class is kind of, I'm falling asleep in this class, but this class is great. It's fantastic. And we just have a very small talk. And then one day, he texts me, and he says, hey, man, would you mind coming over? I have questions about the Bible. Now, I knew Jordan's story a little bit, um, because Southern is, is enough of a smaller school to where you kind of get to know everyone. And I knew that he, he had this image of God that was contrary to my image of God. And so when I got this text message, I had no idea what I was going to walk into. But I said, absolutely, man, I'll, I'll come by and we can talk. I didn't ask him what the question was so I could prepare, so I could, you know, go and be like, okay, this Bible verse and, uh, you know, this Bible verse. Or, I didn't bring with me a set of studies. I just said, okay, God, I don't know what this is, but I'm, we're going to step into it and we're just going to ask you to lead. And I remember coming in and sitting down and immediately being put on the defensive when he asked me, how is it that you can follow a God that is restrictive? I don't know if that's exactly the words that he used, but that was the impression that I heard. And I said, oh man, that's a great question. Let me take you to a Bible verse. And I took him to Galatians 5 verse 1, that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He, he had never read that verse before. He, nobody had ever brought that to his attention. And he was just, it was almost like he had been completely disarmed. What do you mean Christ has set us free for freedom? No, 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 no. Christ died so that I would... Uh, come alongside or, or follow him, and I have to keep this rigid set of rules. I had to have this diet, and I had to have this practice, and I had to have this devotional schedule, and I had to read these books, and, and it was really trauma from a school, that, an Adventist school that he had gone to, where people would knock on his door to make sure that he was up to read the Bible. That's not freedom. I don't see Jesus coaxing us into following him. He just said, look, I love you, and that's enough. And so I shared that verse with Jordan, and then I took him to the only chapter that, that I, I knew off the top of my head at the time, which was Lamentations chapter 3, which is the most depressing chapter in probably all of the Bible. Jeremiah, the prophet, he's talking about how God, he's followed God, and yet God has been harsh to him. In fact, he, he shows us his dental plan. He says that, that God has made his teeth grind on gravel. And Jordan is reading this, and he's just like, wait, this is, this is in the Bible? And then out of nowhere, through just the conversation, all of a sudden he, he starts to tear up because he finally realized that God does not expect us to be this image of a person or this image of a follower. He loves us the way that we are, but he also loves us enough to help us to become the best of ourself. And one of the ways that he gets us there is by allowing us to have freedom. But he's jealous of our freedom. And so he set in place a safeguard so that we wouldn't submit to other forms of slavery. Three years after that conversation, after I sat in Jordan's living room and, and we had a very brief Bible study and, and he opened up to me um, on a, multiple things, he reached out to me and asked if I would baptize him. And so I went up to Chattanooga. And we did a baptism. 
It was intimidating because Jordan is about six foot three and the baptismal tank was a very weird set up circle. But as we were in the water, he, he pulled out, uh, he had been holding it in his hand to not get it wet, a note that he had written about all the attempts that he had tried to believe that God actually loved him. All of the times that he had said, okay, God, I think I get it, and tried to submit to it. But then now he fully understood it. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. He values our freedom, not the freedom with no restrictions, because then we would have nothing to rebel against, and therefore it's not real freedom. He doesn't just value the, the freedom of, of equality. No, biblical freedom in, encapsulates the best of every theory of freedom and disregards every negative because it's the only real freedom and the safeguard he set in place was the Sabbath and so we're living freely right now isn't that fantastic I want to pray for you father we want to thank you Lord so often we are like the Israelites where you bring us up out of slavery whether that's slavery to an addiction whether that's slavery to to an ideology whether that's slavery just to bad habits, Lord. So often you'll bring us out of slavery and us, like the Israelites, will say, oh man, this is uncomfortable, it's uneasy, and we'll try to go back into it. Back into it, Lord. But Father, you are somebody that values our freedom because you are a God of love. And with love, there, should, there comes this notion to, to love or not love back. And so Lord, you are jealous for our freedom and so we are thankful that you gave us this thing called the Sabbath that is to be a safeguard. And so, Lord, may we explore these values of, of to stop, to rest, to delight and worship so that we don't, we don't feel the, the push and pull that society tries to bombard on us, but that we can truly live a life that is so free that people start to question what it is that we have, and we can just simply tell them that we have a Lord and Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we cannot wait to be rid of this world and with you for eternity. Come soon, Lord, for that is our prayer in the name of Jesus. And everyone said...